The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Gia Kokotakis with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for June 24th, 2023. The Supreme Court is set to give a decision on Carnahan versus Maloney this term. This case could have wide-ranging implications for the balance of power between Congress and the executive branch. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from July 9th, 2019, in which Margaret Taylor sat down with Austin Ever and Michael Stern to discuss how Trump brought the issue of congressional oversight of the executive branch to the front pages pending oversight litigation, the House of Representatives strategy, and more. I'm Margaret Taylor, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 9th, 2019. President Trump has declared that he will fight all the subpoenas coming from Congress and has claimed absolute immunity for several White House advisors. In doing so, he has brought the issue of congressional oversight of the executive branch to the front pages. To talk about that very topic, I sat down with Austin Evers, the executive director of American Oversight, a nonprofit government accountability watchdog, and Michael Stern, who served for many years as the senior counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives. Stern is the founder of the Point of Order blog, which covers legal issues affecting Congress. We talked about pending oversight litigation, the House of Representatives' strategy, how the Trump administration is responding, and if any of this is normal. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 433, Austin Evers and Mike Stern on Congressional Oversight. So I want to situate both of my guests here in the sort of nomenclature of congressional oversight, um, the sort of ecosystem, because there's a lot of players in this space. So Mike, you worked in the House General Counsel's office for many years. Why don't you tell our listeners, what is the House General Counsel's Office and what what do they do there? So the House General Counsel's Office uh, sprung up basically from the uh, what was actually originally the General Counsel of the Clerk of the House of Representatives, doing more administrative type of work. But under the speakership of Tip O'Neill, the individual who had that job at the time, Stan Brand, became more of a representative for the uh, legal representative for the house as a whole dealing with uh, for example subpoenas that came into the house during say abscam and other s- legal investigations that occurred in the late 1970s and 1980s eventually that office became formalized by rule as an office that reports to the speaker of the house represents members and officers and committees in their official capacity in various ways. So that includes 
when they are subpoenaed for documents or testimony related to their official duties, when they are sued for matters relating to their official duties and they need representation in court, and also when they are conducting oversight and have legal disputes with the executive branch or in some cases where they even go to court to enforce subpoenas in various ways. And Doug Letter is the current House General Counsel, is that right? That's correct. That's great. And we we had Stan Brand, actually, you mentioned him on the, the Lawfare podcast a few months ago, actually talk about civil enforcement. So and he was a great guest. Um, so, so Austin, same kind of question. You know, you founded American Oversight. You have done oversight for a substantial part of your career. Tell us a little bit about sort of what you've done and sort of what American Oversight is. Sure. Um, American Oversight is a government watchdog at heart. Um, what we do is we use uh, transparency tools, primarily the Freedom of Information Act, backed by aggressive litigation to extract evidence of corruption from the federal government primarily, although we are also working in the states now. What that has meant is over the last two and a half years or so of the Trump administration, submitting open records requests to dozens of agencies and litigating them in court to get evidence of, say, Ivanka Trump's use of personal email the second she got into the White House. Or we got uh, Jeff Sessions' security clearance form that showed that he did not um, identify any of his contacts with Russian officials um, when he was moving into the executive branch. So if you've read stories of ways that the Trump administration has been violating norms and laws, there's a good chance some of the documentary evidence that backs those up is from us. And before that, I was at the State Department and I was an oversight attorney uh, for the senior leadership there. I was brought in to help them navigate Benghazi. And then that quickly metastasized into the Hillary Clinton email investigation. So I helped the building interface with the inspector general, with Congress, helped it deal with the FOIA requests, the open records requests that were going out every day, um, and ultimately personally took almost 40 individuals to testify before Congress. Great. So we've got a huge wealth of knowledge right here uh, in the, the Jungle Studio, which I'm, I'm very excited about. So let's let's dig into some of the very current issues. Uh, so first, I want to talk about the status of litigation on these congressional oversight cases, so cases that are currently in the courts. Uh, and in this bucket, we have um, the Mazars case, which we've talked about here on the podcast before. Uh, this is a, a lawsuit here in D.C. Uh, it was argued at the the district court level and is now on appeal. And actually, the oral the appellate oral argument is going to be on Friday. Uh, and just to remind our listeners sort of what that case is about, this is one where actually President Trump, in his personal capacity, brought suit against essentially against the House Oversight and Reform Committee uh, and also his own a- a- accounting firm, Mazars, in order to prevent Mazars from handing over eight years of financial documents to uh, related to the Trump businesses uh, to the House Oversight and Reform Committee. Uh, so, Austin, do you want to kind of just talk a little bit about this case and maybe tell us a little about what we might see in the, the appellate oral argument on Friday? Sure. Um, I guess I'd start with it's not a normal case in that it's not normal for the president to file a lawsuit to block oversight of a private company. I mean, in general, oversight of the federal government is navigated by the executive branch. And if you're a private company, you navigate it yourself. Um, So this is a pretty extraordinary case. Essentially, what the president is arguing through his lawyers is that 
the request for this information, this accounting information, lacks a legislative purpose. It's a fishing expedition into the personal finances of, of a human being, not a president, but of this individual. And that's not something Congress is empowered to do. I thought the uh, the House mounted a very strong defense, um, articulating its own powers very well, pointing out it's a co-equal branch of government um, and that its legislative purpose is kind of what it says it is. Then came really, I think, a hero of the oversight um, moment these days is Judge Maida not only issued a very strong decision articulating well-established principles of oversight that Congress has a broad investigatory function and that it can set its own legislative purpose and gets deference of that, but also issued his decision incredibly quickly, which is why we're in the D.C. Circuit this Friday. One of the things that people were so concerned about coming into the scorched earth approach of the Trump administration to oversight was that oversight fights often take a long time. Um, the Fast and Furious case over ATF drug running took multiple, multiple years. It was only settled, I believe, last year after it was filed in 2011 or 12. Judge Maida has accelerated um, this issue in a way that is incredibly valuable, and we're going to learn a lot about Congress's oversight authority much sooner than I think any of us anticipated. And, you know, I also in the Second Circuit, there's a similar kind of similar issues up there uh, in similar posture for the case involving Deutsche Bank and Capital One. Uh, in a similar kind of ruling there from Judge Ramos in Southern District. And my understanding is that the Second Circuit hasn't set a date for oral argument, but they, they've also put that on a fast track. And as soon as all the briefing's done, then that oral argument will also be calendared. So it, it is kind of impressive seeing how quickly these courts are inclined to move. You know, Mike, when you were doing this from from the House, like did cases move quickly? Did they move slowly? What was your experience? Well, it's very unusual, as Austin said, to have a case like this in the first place. Normally, when Congress issues a subpoena, the recipient of the subpoena doesn't have the option of going to court because under the speech or debate clause, the committee is immune from being sued for its official, its legislative activities. So ordinarily, if a subpoena recipient wants to fight a subpoena, they simply file objections, and then if they want, they can be held in contempt of Congress. And depending on whether they're in the executive branch, in which case nothing happens, or they're a private party and something does happen, they, they could fight it as, a crim as criminal defendants in court uh, in their own prosecution. The reason this case is different is that the party that received the subpoena is different than the party that is asserting the interest. So the president is asserting that as a private citizen, uh, these are his documents and he has a confidential interest in the documents. And therefore, he is bringing suit to enjoin the, really to enjoin his accounting firm or his banks in the case of this, in the Second Circuit case from complying with the congressional subpoena. An interesting uh, twist on this, it was not clear to me that you would be able to bring such a suit without a privilege, like attorney-client privilege or some similar privilege that you were asserting. What Trump's lawyers argued, and apparently no one is really fighting, is that you can also challenge the existence of a legitimate legislative purpose, which is normally something that the person who receives the subpoena can, can raise. But it's not at all obvious to me anyway that a third party could raise it. But that has been accepted 
by apparently by everyone in the litigation. So that is really the issue that is being uh, appealed to the courts of appeals. And the president's lawyers appear to be pursuing a very interesting, very long shot strategy, but I guess it's the only strategy that they have, which is basically to argue that the president, because his office is established under the Constitution, is not subject to the normal uh, legislative power of Congress. Basically, what they argue in their appeal brief to the D.C. Circuit is that because the president is created directly by the Constitution, like the Supreme Court justices, and they use this analogy specifically, these offices are not subject to normal legislative oversight. And what they basically say is if you want to get this information, you should impeach. That's the one constitutional remedy that exists for this kind of conduct that you're investigating. And since you will not do that, you're out of luck. Now, that is, a, I think, a very long shot argument, but it seems very clearly directed at trying to get enough interest in members of the Supreme Court to get this case up to the Supreme Court. Not necessarily that they think they're going to win, but just to get it to the court. And so I think uh, we will see, I think, in the oral argument on Friday, one, whether the judges are interested in this question of impeachment and why there has been no impeachment, why the House is not relying on impeachment, and also whether any of the judges, because there are two Democratic appointees and one Republican appointee, if any of them seem inclined to buy the uh, president's argument, that could have a big effect on whether this is something that gets the Supreme Court's attention. And so, Mike, you say you think it's a long shot. And I think most lawyers who are looking at these briefs <laughs> think that as well. Why would President Trump want to, you know, get a case of Supreme Court that he's probably going to lose? So that is a good question that I don't know the answer to. Uh, one reason might be simply to delay because if the Supreme Court were to grant cert and hear the case, it's possible that by the time that uh, they decide the case, it will either be you know, too late to do anything really with the information or possibly even that the uh, – depending on how long the Court of Appeals takes, possibly the election might even be over. So that's one possibility. But there are others and I, I'm not sure really what their, their reasons are. Austin, any theories? Um, well, I'll give them for the moment the benefit of the doubt and, and point out that uh, there is something a little bit scary about Congress calling up your accountant and saying, give me all of this person's financial records. And the uh, the Trump legal team does have Supreme Court case law that essentially says exposure for the sake of exposure is not a valid le uh, legislative purpose. It comes from the McCarthy era. I think what they're missing and I think what all the courts will do is it, it, they'll point out that there's a difference between being a private citizen and being the president. And as long as Congress has articulated a reason to go in to a president's conduct that ties to his official position, there's go for it. The other thing that I've been wondering is whether we're seeing Donald Trump, the litigant as president, being totally different than previous presidents. I remember hearing articulations of Congress's power and of the executive's power coming out of executive branch lawyers' mouths that 
didn't have a lot of basis in actual case law, a lot of basis in OLC opinions and things that are maybe the foundation of OLC lawyers' opinions, but that don't always hold up when taken to court. And what was always striking to me is that when I offered to take one of their arguments into Congress and really argue it with my counterparts there, they said, oh, no, 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 but you should compromise. We don't actually want to put that argument on the table to be decided. And it feels like this president and his penchant for going to court is going to tee up some of these executive power and our legislative power questions that, you know, constitutional theorists have been kicking around for a long time, but maybe never really wanted to test. Right. And it could, I mean, I suppose it could be the case that the fact these cases are moving so quickly and may even go to the Supreme Court could mean that the Supreme Court is actually sort of solidifying some of Congress's, you know, prerogatives and powers uh, yeah. in the context of the Constitution and separation of powers. So interesting times for people like us, I, I agree. Suppose. I will also point out that I could easily imagine Donald Trump being very upset with his appointment of Justice Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court in these cases because we need to remember that Kavanaugh cut his teeth on the Starr investigation, which over and over and over again challenged the president's ability to hold things confidential, challenged uh, access to documents, went to court, fought tooth and nail uh, to get access to things, and engaged in pretty extensive exposure for the sake of exposure. That's his foundation. I believe that Donald Trump may have appointed to the Supreme Court a lawyer who believes quite strongly in the ability to investigate a president. Well, you know, on the in the three-judge panel on Friday, Naomi Rao is one of the judges on the panel, and she, a lot of your listeners will, will already know, I'm sure, was uh, confirmed to that seat. That was Brett Kavanaugh's seat on the D.C. Circuit. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how she handles these types of issues while we hear from her on Friday. Um, so that's probably a good segue to talking about another case, and this will be the last case we talk about. Um, and this one's a little bit different. This is the House Ways and Means Committee suing the Treasury Department and the IRS for access to Trump's tax returns. So, Mike, do you want to just give us a little overview and your your thoughts on this case? Sure. Well, the law provides that, uh, generally speaking, the tax returns are confidential, but that there are certain government entities that are entitled to get access to them. And there is a specific provision uh, that allows certain committees of the Congress to request access to tax return information from the Treasury Department. And in the House, that's the Ways and Means Committee. So it is rarely used by uh, committees, at least rarely used other than in a sense of getting sort of general data. Like, so they, they do get access to tax return information, particularly Joint Committee on Taxation gets access for the purpose of determining things like have tax receipts gone up or down or what the effect of different provisions and things like that. But for, for investigatory purposes, it's fairly rare but not unheard of for the uh, committees to use this, this power. Obviously, there's been a huge amount of controversy about the president's failure to release his tax returns during the election. So when the Democrats took over the House, there was a great deal of discussion about whether the Ways and Means Committee would seek to get access to uh, his returns, and if so, on what basis. Now, there's nothing in the statute which specifically says that the committee has to give any reason for its uh, request if it makes it. But um, 
the committee did so. It filed eventually filed a request with the um, IRS and the Treasury Secretary that basically said, we would like to get Trump's tax returns going back, I think it's six years or something like that. And the reason that we want it is because we want to see how the audit of presidential tax returns is being performed, whether it's being performed properly. Now, I have to tell you that I do not find this a very uh, believable explanation as to why the uh, committee wants the uh, tax returns. Um, I'm not entirely sure why they decided to rely on that. Um, but nonetheless, that is the at least the primary explanation they gave to the Treasury Department. The Treasury Department responded by saying, well, we're not sure we're entitled to or you're entitled to this information. We're going to get an opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel, which is in the Justice Department, uh, on whether this is a proper request. And OLC then issued an opinion, which basically said that uh, we we believe that one, the uh, committee does need a reason. They need to give a reason for why they want the tax returns. And two, that the reason they gave is not the actual reason, which has some um, some similarities to some other issues that are going on at this time. Uh, but basically, the uh, OLC said that we think that the uh, reason is pretextual, and therefore, uh, we do not believe that you should or can provide the tax return information that the committee has requested. Yeah, I mean, can we talk a little bit about that? I, I read that OLC opinion. I found it very unconvincing. It, it seemed sort of extraordinary to me that not only did they say you don't have to turn over the tax returns, they said we're actually not permitted to turn over the tax returns, which I, I just found to be such a sort of extraordinary kind of argument um, and not, and frankly, not just not very convincing. Um, Austin, what did you think of that I found opinion? it to be a very odd opinion in that um, I think if the way the OLC framed it was essentially, dear Secretary Mnuchin, you were not unreasonable to call BS on the committee's stated reason for wanting these returns because they have not articulated their real reason, because their real reasons are purely political and illegitimate. You're not authorized to produce these under the statute because the statute requires some sort of legitimacy. What I thought was an interesting move that they made was then they said a court would be more deferential to Congress's stated purpose. It might not feel that it is empowered to do what you're doing, which is look under their stated reason to find their real reason. So it's an OLC opinion that effectively greenlit Secretary Mnuchin um, obstructing the request while also flagging that it probably wasn't going to hold up in court. I don't think I've seen one like that before. I, I'm not sure I have either. So maybe maybe it's a good time to talk about OLC. And for our, our lawfare listeners, they know what OLC is. It's the Office of Legal Counsel within the Department of Justice. It's a very powerful office. Um, they're sort of the lawyers' lawyers within the executive branch. And I was a lawyer in the State Department. And so that, I know that's kind of how we thought of them. You know, having this mechanism where the Office of Legal Counsel is able to sort of issue an opinion that is supportive of or gives cover to uh, the head of an agency. It, it's really kind of a, a useful and powerful thing for the executive branch. And so one sort of idea that's been kicking around in the sort of congressional oversight space is, you know, would it make sense for Congress to have something like the equivalent of an office of legal counsel who could, that could issue legal opinions, that could give committees, you know, support and cover in the same way that OLC does for 
the executive branch. So I want to ask each of you what you think of that. And we'll start with you, Austin. I think that the uh, Office of Legal Counsel is an extraordinary body. I, I love reading their opinions. They are the keepers of the flame uh, for the executive branch and its prerogatives. And I remember being a lawyer at the State Department and being told, you know, go call the OLC, you know, get get the best practice on this or get the history on this. And they have people who've been working in that office for decades and they know the fights, they know the law. But as I indicated earlier, they often have a proprietary view of the Constitution uh, that is not shared by others. Uh, has never really been tested in court. But they do have this public body of law and private body of law that is binding. It's essentially a, you know, a codicil to the Constitution. There isn't a counterpart in the legislative branch. Uh, the Congressional Research Service puts out analyses of the law, but it's much more expository of what the law is, what past fights have been, and how they have come out. They are not muscular statements of, of Congress's authority in a way that the OLC articulates a muscular view of the executive branch's prerogative. Um, and I do think it would be useful to have a, a less asymmetric articulation of the different branches of, of government's power. As it stands, most congressional oversight fights start with a, you know, a, a committee articulating its demand, uh, issuing a subpoena. Maybe there's an OLC opinion saying, here's all the reasons why that, uh, that subpoena is not valid, or you don't have to turn over this, you don't have to turn over that. And then there's a compromise. And that OLC opinion stands for like its maximal view of what co- the executive branch could be forced to do. And then they end up doing something as a compromise. It's only when they rarely go to court that the executive branch lawyers really have to test those views, and they don't usually win. Um, Most of the opinions on executive branch power vis-a-vis oversight come out in favor of Congress. So I think it would be useful to have a different articulation of the separation of powers. I don't think it exists right now. That said, a congressional OLC would be much more um, of an advisory opinion generator because they're not really guiding any executive action the way OLC is. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mike? So from my perspective, uh, from the congressional side, um, we're not quite as uh, laudatory of of OLC perhaps as those in the executive branch. Rather than the keepers of the flame, as Austin said, uh, I think a better expression is the keepers of the presidential fig leaf, which a couple of professors came up with a few years ago and actually saying that, that that's what OLC is supposed to do, right? They're supposed to – the president says what he wants to do and they come up with a legal reason for justifying whatever it is. So I don't view OLC as having any sort of binding precedent as far – certainly as far as Congress is concerned. I don't know – 
I'm not sure how it would work to have a similar office for Congress as a whole. There's no way. The reason OLC works in the executive branch is you have a branch of government that's run by one person, right? And, Unitary executive uh, branch. Exactly. And so the if the OLC says this is the law and the rules and regulations of the executive branch said you follow what OLC says, that's great. Everyone in the executive branch will salute and, and follow uh, what they say. But it doesn't work like that in Congress. And particularly when you've got the House and the Senate, which even if they weren't controlled by different parties, often have very different views. And obviously, the majority and the minority always have very different views. I don't know how effective it would be to have a Congress-wide legal office. I will say that CRS does perform that role to some degree. I mean, it's interesting, during the time that Mort Rosenberg was at CRS, he sort of was his own uh, one-person one OLC in many ways. And there's no reason, I guess, why someone at CRS couldn't sort of recreate that, that kind of um, function. In terms of having a formal congressional council, that was something that was considered back in the 1970s. It was actually in some proposed legislation. And the uh, House actually backed out of it. And uh, so it ended up being just the Senate Legal Council that was created by statute. And the House Counsel's Office, as I mentioned before, sort of grew up naturally um, apart from that. And it just exists by rule uh, in the House rules. Yeah, w- one thing I would point out is that when I was at the State Department, I liked being able to refer to an OLC opinion from the Reagan administration or the Clinton administration and say, this is how it's been done for decades. This has been the view for a long time. And one thing that Congress doesn't have is that longstanding institutional body of of law or opinions on itself. I mean, one one example is if you want to understand the question of absolute immunity, which I think we're going to talk about of for presidential advisors, you have multiple OLC opinions saying that the close advisors to the president cannot be called to Congress at all, let alone be forced to answer questions. You have one case at a district court level here in DC that rejected that completely. OLC does not accept that decision. And if you want to understand Congress's view on it, what you have to do is you got to go dig through their briefs and find their briefs from the district court case from 2008. I think it would just be useful to have the arguments in those briefs, the views of those briefs condensed in some way, formalized in some way. Not that I don't love coming to a point of order to read, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the history of these things all the time. Point but, of Pointoforder.com um, is Mike's blog. Yes, an incredibly useful resource. And often where I go for the PDF of a Reagan-era OLC opinion. Um, But I think it would be useful to have Congress speaking as an institution because it often feels like it isn't an institution. It's a collection of individuals. It's chaos and it completely changes based on partisan divide. But it does have institutional interests. So maybe that's a good segue to sort of talking about, again, going back to what's going on right now with uh, absolute immunity, which is something that the Trump administration is claiming with respect to Trump's former advisors, basically. Um, And there's three people that have been subpoenaed, essentially, for their testimony. Don McGahn, who's the former White House counsel 
Hope Hicks, the former White House communications director, and then Annie Donaldson, who was the chief of staff for Don McGahn. And I've been following these pretty closely, and they've, they've all sort of turned out a little bit differently, sort of what happened with them. So in the case of Don McGahn, he, he was subpoenaed. The White House essentially claimed this thing called absolute immunity, which hasn't been recognized by any court. And he ended up essentially not showing up uh, and was held in civil contempt by the House. Um, In the case of Hope Hicks, uh, she ended up in sort of a negotiation with the Judiciary Committee, ended up doing like testifying behind closed doors. Uh, But that immunity was also sort of invoked for her as part of this negotiation. And then Annie Donaldson, who sort of is the most recent person in the news because she sort of similarly was subpoenaed and in the course of the negotiation where they sort of landed was uh, that she would respond to written questions. And she did that just very recently, a couple of days ago. In her you know, answers, I guess, to about 212 questions, she said, Something along the lines of the White House has directed that I not respond to this question because of the constitutionally based executive branch confidentiality interests that are implicated. But they did not claim absolute immunity with respect to Annie Donaldson. So, Mike, I know you've been doing a bunch of work on this. So why don't you what do you have to say on this topic? Well, I I have written a number of posts on this. This is certainly not, in my opinion, one of OLC's finest moments. And and it definitely does not start with this administration. It goes back about 20 years. Basically, the history of this is ever since there was an executive office of the president, that is to say, starting, say, around 1940, it has been the general position of presidents that they do not like their White House advisors to testify before Congress. And and the reason essentially is that the thought is that these advisors don't have any authority of their own. All they do is, in theory at least, they advise the president on his uh, his official powers. They help him reach decisions, but they don't make decisions. They don't carry out the decisions. They don't have any statutory role, and therefore that they really have no business ordinarily testifying before Congress because it is essentially something that would be covered by executive privilege, almost all the information that they uh, would have. And up to a point, that's I think that's pretty reasonable. And generally, Congress has accepted that in the ordinary course. That is to say, they, they will not call the White House chief of staff or the national security advisor or whoever, simply to do oversight of policy decisions and and things of that nature, ordinarily. It was not, however, until the Clinton administration that this sort of general policy, which was often observed in the breach, that is to say, when there were specific reasons why a White House official needed to testify, for example, during Watergate, during Iran-Contra, when they were not just people talking about policy issues, but were actually fact witnesses to important events, that in those cases, they they did allow them to go and testify before Congress. But this, this idea became a constitutional position that the Justice Department took and basically said somehow constitutionally that these advisors were immune from having to show up at all, regardless of what the subject matter was, with one small exception, which 
the OLC refers to as testimony about their private affairs, which appears to be its effort to explain a couple of early cases in which uh, White House advisors went and talked about and went to Congress and testified about allegations of improprieties that they personally committed while in office. And in those cases, they were allowed to testify. I'm not sure that those really constitute what I would call private affairs because they were involved misuse of government, uh, their government positions. But that's how OLC characterizes it. But except for that limited exception, which it doesn't really define, it takes the position that everyone who is a senior advisor to the president, not everyone in the White House, but everyone who qualifies as a senior advisor to the president, which itself is a uh, hard to exactly define category. That, that is, may be why Annie Donaldson did not That is, get I believe, that. why Annie Donaldson did not get the full absolute immunity treatment. But everyone who falls in that category has absolute immunity for coming to testify to Congress, not, not courts, just Congress, about anything related to their official duties. That is their position, as uh, was mentioned earlier, it was rejected in the only case that it's ever been uh, raised in court. Um, it's also pretty clearly inconsistent with Supreme Court opinion dealing with a somewhat different but analogous issue related to immunity for civil damages. But that is OLC's opinion. And despite the fact that Judge Bates did not agree with it, they are holding to it until some higher court tells them otherwise. And so, Austin, what are the practical consequences of this? I mean, it seems to me, you know, at least Hope Hicks and Annie Donaldson have ended up in these sort of negotiated situations, doing things either written or behind closed doors. You have been involved in these types of negotiations. What do you think of those outcomes for these types of witnesses where, you know, I mean, would it be good for the American people to kind of see these folks in live live hearing answering questions? Or is it actually not that useful? Like, what's your what's your view? I think with respect to the immunity assertions that have been made, we need to go back to kind of the first principle of these are co-equal branches of government. And according to the D.C. Circuit, they have an obligation to try to accommodate each other's interests to compromise. It is the executive branch's view that the senior advisors to the president should not be called before Congress at all. Um, and when they get there, they uh, should not have to answer specific questions that pertain to privileged issues. But over the course of history, both of those objections have fallen in specific cases where Congress has asserted a sufficient need and fought hard and long enough and uh, individual senior advisors have appeared. They appeared in Benghazi. They appeared in, in Watergate. They've appeared in Iran-Contra. And they have answered specific questions, not always asserting executive privilege. What I think is a problem right now is that the question of immunity, whether you have to show up at all, and the question of privilege are being bifurcated in a really clunky way. Annie Donaldson wrote answers to written questions. But uh, that was only a question of immunity. So she showed up. Or Hope Hicks showed up in person to, to so she was, didn't act immune. But they protected privilege aggressively. So what's the next step? The committee has to um, articulate a basis to get answers to each of those individual questions and seek probably a new subpoena or to enforce a subpoena and go to court on those. And then you're kind of in the Nixon tape scenario. Have they articulated a sufficient basis to overcome the qualified immunity of privilege? It is a spread out fight when I think it would be better if the branches could – 
accommodate and collapse those two questions into one. But right now what you have is a White House who is denying the uh, legitimacy of Congress's investigations. They don't want these questions answered at all. They're going to fight tooth and nail. I think the the people who are going to pay for this the most might be the future presidents who get D.C. Circuit and Supreme Court cases collapsing these issues down and basically giving Congress a clear roadmap of what they need to articulate at the moment of subpoena, not only to make someone show up, but make them answer specific questions. And so, I mean, if you were advising Jerry Nadler, would you say, hey, you know, you should take these to court now? Or how would you advise Nadler, you think? I actually think Jerry Nadler is doing a is a good is doing a good job. Um, congressional oversight is clunky. It is slow. There is process, and he's got dozens of people that he's got to coordinate with staff and members and leadership. And what I would say is that when you are dealing with a White House that is taking a maximal you know obstruction approach, Congress should accelerate. And I think they have. Um, I think they're issuing subpoenas more quickly, and I think they should go to court. I think if you look at the the written answers from Donaldson, if you look at Hopix's testimony, we shouldn't stop with uh, a White House lawyer saying you can't answer. I think Congress should test its legitimacy there, and I think it should go to court more quickly. I don't know all the process that he has to jump through to do it. I do think he is he and his committee are proceeding pretty darn quickly. Um, at least compared to previous investigations. Yeah, I would note for our listeners that just was seeing on on Twitter and elsewhere today that on Thursday, the Judiciary Committee will consider a resolution that will authorize, essentially authorize Nadler to issue subpoenas on a number of different issues. A bucket of them is related to uh, the family separation at the border. Um, There's also a bucket where there's like 12 people that are named in the resolution. And these are these are heavy hitters. Uh, so we're talking about people like Michael Flynn, the former National Security Advisor, Jared Kushner, uh, John Kelly, the former Chief of Staff, uh, Rod Rosenstein, the for- former Deputy Attorney General. So lots of sort of big hitter names on this list. And so going forward, I think the question will be, how are each of these 12 people sort of treated in this ecosystem we have where the you know the executive branch is, is taking a pretty maximalist view. Um, and then, you know, these committees are trying to sort of negotiate to get something useful, but also, you know, trying to figure out when they're going to go to court or not. It seems to me that what the committee is doing is getting rid of the oversight pleasantries. They're moving straight to subpoenas. So the conversation is not, well, first you have to write a letter, then you have to negotiate. And then when you get really angry, then you issue subpoena and then you negotiate. In fact, I believe the ranking member the top Republican on the committee said that Nadler views a subpoena as a as a um, foundation on which to negotiate. I think that is what he's doing, and I think what that is that acceleration that I was talking about. They want to get to the merits. They want to say, "Okay, Mike Flynn, are you coming in or not?" Because if you're not, we can go to court. We already have a subpoena. Mike, what do you, I mean, you've had a lot of experience in this. Is this? It does seem different to me. What, what's happening here? But does it seem different to you compared to prior Congresses with working with prior administrations? It's difficult to say exactly. Um, it feels a little bit like the Clinton administration where there was a number of different investigations going on, some of them uh, more programmatic, some of them involving misconduct or alleged misconduct in the White House, some involving the personal misconduct of the president. So... I, th- I think uh, it's not entirely different. It is certainly the 
I don't know exactly how to call it, uh, the uh, attitude of the president himself uh, in terms of saying things like, we're going to fight all the subpoenas. I don't think you could find another president who would say something like that. Uh, whether the actual, the actual carrying out of his instructions ends up being all that different is harder to say. But there certainly is a huge number of fronts that have opened up and they're going on simultaneously. Whether that's a good thing or ends up being a good thing for the institution of Congress or or not, it's it's a little hard to say. It, it does seem to me that if you want to go to court, you ought to try to find the strongest and most important case you can. I don't not sure that the, I would identify the tax returns as being that case. I think that Don McGahn would be an example of that case, right? He is not a current uh, government official. His, he has not just refused to answer specific questions. He's refused to show up at all. It's on the basis of this OLC opinion or series of opinions that uh, have been rejected by the courts already and I think likely would be rejected again. So I, it's a little hard for me to understand why that wouldn't sort of be put to the head of the front of the line. On the other hand, I will say I have been there and I'm going to keep the armchair quarterbacking to a minimum because it is not easy when you are in the, any of these chairman positions. You've got people shooting at you from all sides and you've got to negotiate a whole lot of minefields to get anything done. So uh, it's, it's easy for me to, uh, to say, but for, for what my opinion is worth, that, that would be my opinion. So, and this, I think, for me, is kind of like the heart of what I've been thinking about lately, because I hear from a lot of people and I read a lot of stuff. So on the one side, you have like the president and his allies essentially saying that, you know, Congress, meaning sort of House Democrats really, are engaged in sort of an unprecedented, you know, presidential harassment. Um, you have a, Attorney General Bill Barr saying just this past Monday that, you know, Democrats are trying to stir up a, quote, public spectacle with the Mueller hearing that will occur next week. And he said, quote, if Bob decides he doesn't want to be subject to that, then the Department of Justice would certainly back him, unquote. So you're seeing def a definite view from sort of one side about, you know, what Congress and House Democrats are engaged in here. And then on the other side, you know, there's also sort of shade being thrown from a lot of people who are like, okay, well, I went to the polls in 2018 and I voted for Democrats because I wanted a check on the Donald Trump presidency. And it seems like a lot of those folks are sort of unhappy with, you know, progress not being made. Um, you know, even just today, for example, uh, there was a reporter that asked Nancy Pelosi about whether the House would look into uh, Secretary of Labor Acosta and his you know, actions over a decade ago when he was U.S. attorney down in Florida to give like a sweetheart deal to Jeffrey Epstein, who has just been indicted up in the Southern District for uh, sex crimes uh, against children. So and, you know, her response basically was, you know, she she had said she and Chuck Schumer both had said, called on the president to kind of get rid of Acosta um, or, you know, fire him basically from from the cabinet. But when a, a reporter specifically said, you know, what are you going to do? What is Congress going to do? Pelosi said, well, it's up to the president. It's his cabinet. You know, we, we've got a great deal of work to do here for the good of the American people, and we have to focus on that. And so 
I don't know what to say to sort of both sides who are everyone seems to be unhappy with the, the status of congressional oversight right now. So you both are experts. What, what would you say is the sort of fair look at how this is going? What could be done better? I have a, I have a couple of thoughts. One, I don't think Nancy Pelosi was sitting in a podcast environment discussing oversight you know, as an intellectual matter. I think she was playing some pretty smart politics by saying, huh, you have someone in your cabinet who might have let a sex criminal free because he's a super wealthy donor. That sounds like your problem. You should be held accountable for that. That's not my problem. I think she's very happy to leave that in Donald Trump's sphere. Um, in terms of how the oversight is be being conducted overall, I think oversight is incredibly frustrating, especially from the outside. People said, oh, the Democrats are going to take the House. They get the subpoena. Well, President Clinton's administration was subject to over 1,100 subpoenas during his eight years. Subpoenas used to fly out of Jason Chaffetz's um, uh, oversight committee during the Obama administration, and I'm not sure that they ended up being worth as much as the paper they were printed on because they they weren't really backed rhetorically or with follow-up. You know, it's not a strong legal um, investigative tool. It's it's um, it's a broader accountability tool that takes time. I think Jerry Nadler is doing a good job. I think his staff is doing a good job. I think Chairman Cummings is doing an exceptional job in chasing down issues that really matter. I would point out a really underappreciated moment of oversight this year that I think should resonate more. Out of nowhere in February, Chairman Cummings, newly with the gavel of the Oversight Committee, dropped a report on this secret um, Saudi Arabian uh, nuclear deal where uh, you know, a company was trying to sell nuclear power plants to Saudi Arabia and Kushner was involved and the, the NSC ethics official ordered everybody in the White House to stand down that there was conflicts of interest because of Michael Flynn and then they didn't stand down. That's an extraordinary scandal that in normal times would have probably um, garnered more attention. But that just shows the uh, slow, careful work that the staffs are doing behind the scenes. They've been working on it for a long time. And I would expect each one of these threads to mature over the next couple of years. Will there be any, quote, true accountability where someone is somehow like frog marched out of D.C.? No, that's not how this works. Accountability is often public sentiment. If you don't have a president who's willing to fire people, you've got a Senate who's controlled by a very friendly party of, to the president. They're not going to cut the funds of an agency that doesn't answer a subpoena from the House. Um, we used to deal that with that um, when the Senate wanted something and the House would come help. So I think they're doing a very good job in an, an inherently frustrating legal regime. And the fact that we are all talking about Annie Donaldson and Don McGahn and the obstruction, and we are going to probably see more case law on oversight out of this administration in the past 30 years, I think this can be a pretty good track record. Mike, what do you think? What would you say to these frustrated people? Well, I think that as a uh, institutionalist, I feel that uh, there is legitimate frustration, not necessarily the frustration that people feel on Twitter when something actually outrageous or that they think is outrageous happens and there isn't immediate results, but rather the frustration of Congress over a long period of time that its oversight tools have atrophied. And that it is very difficult to get information out of the executive branch. Now, it's certainly true. There's all kinds of different oversight. There's the programmatic oversight that goes on every day. 
there's probably a lot of that that is happening that people don't even know about. And in fact, if you've got, particularly in this administration, I would say, if you have issues where the Democrats and the Republicans agree on something, say at the Armed Services Committee or the Appropriations Committees, they can probably get whatever they want because there's not really the institutional the institutional pushback in the administration, I suspect. This is guesswork on my part. But that would there would normally be if the agency, you know, doesn't agree with Congress on something and it doesn't rise to the level of something that the president personally cares about, I would suspect the agencies actually have less leverage in this administration than in prior administrations. On the other hand, with the things that the president does care about, particularly the things that affect him personally, we're seeing the pushing of the tools of Congress are being pushed to their maximum extent and are showing themselves at this point to need something further. And I think there are some reforms that are needed in terms of the congressional rules that would make things work more smoothly. But we may need some court cases as well to try to reestablish some of that congressional power. I think that's a good place to end. Austin Evers, Mike Stern, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Austin Evers and Mike Stern for coming on the show. If you haven't yet, please take a second to share the Lawfare Podcast on social media and give us a five-star rating and review wherever you found us. You can also now purchase Lawfare swag at our online store, www.thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.